Good morning. I heard one over here and one over here and a little bit of muffle. Try that again. Good morning. There we go. There we go. Now that I know everybody's awake, let's say a quick word of prayer and continue to stay awake. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you and praise you for bringing us into your house. God, I ask that as we have come in here to worship and as we have come here to sing praises to you, to uh, be with each other and to hear the word uh, preached, proclaimed, and read, that God, what we do honors you first and foremost. But God, I also ask that as we do this, that God, your spirit comes and guides us and leads us to knowing who you are better. God, I pray that what is revealed in the message today, God, is something that we can all, as a church and individuals, take and apply to our lives and daily settings. God, I thank you and I praise you for who you are. It's in your son's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. We've seen, as we've traveled through the book of Acts, what the church has done. And we've seen them do some pretty amazing things. We've seen that they have been given a purpose and a mission. God gave them what it was that they were supposed to do. More accurately, Jesus gave them what it was that they were supposed to do. But he also gave them the Holy Spirit to empower them to carry out this mission, to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the furthest ends of the earth. And we see them start to do that just here within the opening few pages of the book of Acts. In chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit empower them, and they start speaking and preaching in the name of Jesus. And what they have to reveal starts to get a hold of people. And we know that in that first in inaugural, inaugural setting, 3,000 people came to know who Jesus was, what he'd accomplished. The church was born from 120 people going to 3,000 in about a day. It's a beautiful thing that we see happen there in the book of Acts. We see that they continue on preaching and teaching. We know that God added to their number daily. We know that the church started to do things that honestly made them look a little strange. They started to take care of people that were around them. There wasn't a needy person among them. They took care of the needs of people around them. They met people where they were at. They started giving of what they had to meet both physical and spiritual needs. And we know that they did healings. We know that they worked wonders and signs. It kind of got Peter and John into trouble. We know that they stood in front of the Sanhedrin. We know that there were people that agreed with what they were doing. Peter and John standing in front of the Sanhedrin didn't agree with what they were doing. The church had a large impact just in the first little bit of Acts that we've read. We've seen them do some amazing things. We've seen how they were unified, and we've seen that they had issues that they had to overcome. Again, they had a good standing among most of the people in Jerusalem. There were a few that didn't agree. We know that they had to pray because the Sanhedrin said, if you continue doing this, we will... Press the envelope further. You will be beaten. You will be arrested. You will be flogged. And guess what? That's what was going to happen. That's exactly what we're going to find as you continue on throughout the book of Acts. But the, the apostles and the church came together and they prayed, God, give us the boldness to continue doing what we need to in spite of what they say that they're going to do to us. And the church did some amazing things. And, and as I look, as I read through the book of Acts, every time I read through the book of Acts, I read this, I see this. And I think to myself, and I hope you think to yourself as well, man, would it not be great if the church today could be like the church of Acts was? 
And when we read through the book of Acts, as we go through this entire book, if you were to read through it all, you see the church doing amazing things everywhere they go. And it looks like all they had was they started down here and they just had smooth sailing all along. But that's a misconception. Because though they did a lot of things right, they also had their issues that they had to overcome. I shared with you last week that there were a couple of issues that they had to deal with. One of those we're actually going to be looking at today. And, and, and the understanding that we find within the book of Acts, and that we find throughout the epistles, and the way that the churches worked, we look at those and we admire what they did, and we admire what the apostles were able to accomplish, and we think to ourselves, wouldn't it be great if the church could do that today? And, and the reality is, is we can still do what the church of Acts did. We still can do and accomplish all of these things. But a lot of the times we think that our issues that we have with each other or our issues that, that go between this denominational church and this denominational church, they're too big, too wide to actually accomplish what we find here in the book of Acts. The reality is, is our issues are never too big for God to handle. And what we find here in the book of Acts is they come to an issue. They come to one of those points to where... This could either make or break this fledgling church. This is actually a major issue in their history. Before we get into it, I want us to think about this question. I want us to think about this idea. How are we to face our issues that we face within the church without allowing them to destroy us and to separate us and to destroy that bond of unity that we are to keep with each other? Remember what we looked at last week. Remember that they held all things in common. That they had one heart and they were of one mind. That idea of unity. You get to chapter 6, which we're going to be in this morning. And they go from being one heart, one mind. There's an issue that can detrimentally harm the church. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 this morning. And as we look at this event in the church's history, there are some pointers that we as a church and as a people of God can take away from it to apply to how we deal with certain things that we struggle with within the body of Christ. And here's a reality. This is something that's true in the book of Acts in the first century. This is something that's true today of us in the 21st century. When you put people together, and the church is made up of people, by the way, so there's a very human element we are going to have problems with each other. There is going to be friction. There are going to be sparks that fly. But that should not cause us to divide. And that's what we're going to see within the church of Acts. Let's see what we can learn as we start our journey this morning. Acts chapter 6. We're going to start off looking only at verse 1 as we begin. So let's begin our journey and see what we can learn from the church in the book of Acts about conflict. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Now, as we begin here this morning, there's a couple of things of information that are important for us to take into consideration as we begin. The first thing that is highlighted, and I love the way that Luke sets this entire thing up, is he gives us the positive thing first. And that is, in those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, this lets us know that the apostles, the disciples, that all of them, they were increasing in number. Why? Because they were staying faithful to what it is that God wanted them to do. Now, actually, if we were to go back and look at chapter 5, you may have noticed that we went from chapter 4 last week to chapter 6. There's an entire chapter between those two. 
There's a reason I didn't hit those because we've hit a couple of the, the elements that are revealed within them. But let me give you a quick play of what happened. What we have in chapter 5 is we have a, an, an interesting interplay between the Holy Spirit, Peter, and two people known as Ananias and Sapphira. We see the Holy Spirit move within the church and we also see that the Holy Spirit does not like to be lied to. We find that out. We see that Peter does, through the Spirit, does some amazing things, or the Spirit through Peter, however you want to look at that. And needless to say, Ananias and Sapphira thought that they would sell land that they had and give some of the proceeds to the church, telling them that they're giving all of it. In other words, they're not being honest. And they want to, what they're basically doing is want to make themselves look good. The Spirit knows exactly what's happening. Peter basically confronts them with it. They stick to their lie, and they both drop dead. There's a song to this, by the way. I'm not going to sing it to you, but there is a child song about this entire ordeal. And uh, it was something that I was taught. I always found it a fun song to sing. I don't know what that says about me. But the Spirit moved in that way. We've seen the Spirit move within the church in a lot of different ways. And we know that they did a lot of signs and wonders. After this, Peter goes and he starts preaching in the temple. Guess what? He gets arrested. He gets thrown in jail, and he's going to have to stay in front of the Sanhedrin. Over the night, the angel comes and frees Peter, takes him out of prison, and says, I want you to go stand in the temple courts, and I want you to preach again. So he goes, and he starts preaching again. Whenever he's supposed to be called in front of the Sanhedrin, the temple guard goes, and he says, um, he's not in jail. He's in the temple preaching again. They go in, they get him again, and they tell him, guess what? We told you to stop doing this. We told you not to preach anymore. And you know what he tells them? I'm not going to stop. I've got to follow what the Holy Spirit tells me to do. And I've got to follow what God tells me to do. We already told you we weren't going to stop. This time they don't just let Peter go. They actually flog him. They beat him with, with rods. That's what they do. And then they let him go. So the persecution is getting cranked up. And then afterwards, the apostles, they hear this. And they start performing signs and wonders. And people start coming to God because the disciples stay faithful to what it was that they were called to do. The very first thing that God told them to do at the very beginning of the book of Acts is I want you to go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, the first end of the earth. They are sticking with that. And God is blessing them with this. But that's actually not what we're focusing on this morning. That'd be a great place just to stop. We could focus on that. But that's not what we're focusing on this morning. That's how Luke starts off. In those days, while the disciples were growing in number, there arose a complaint. There arose a complaint amongst the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that the Hellenistic Jewish widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Now, I want you to look at the understanding of this complaint that is being raised. What you have here is a church that is now probably around 5,000 people or so. And you have the, the apostles who are over this congregation. If you want to think about it very lightly or jokingly, this is the first mega church, and Peter apparently is the first mega church pastor. That's the way you could look at this, and it wouldn't necessarily be that far off. But in all reality, what you have is you have a large group of people. We also know that the people that are involved don't all speak necessarily the same language. How do we know that? Because on that first day at Pentecost, when the church inaugurated and when it got started, they were speaking in 16 different languages. So we know that there's a different cultural ethnic groups within it. But here's the other thing that's interesting about it. All of them are Jews. All of them are Jewish in heritage. Here we have a subset of the Hellenistic Jews 
and the Hebraic or the natural Jews. Now, there's a difference between the two. If you were classified as a Hellenized person, you were a person that actually spoke Greek, you thought like a Greek, and you lived in predominantly Roman or Greek areas. There were Jews, a large Jewish population down in Alexandria in Egypt. Huge Jewish population. Jewish rabbis in Alexandria are the ones who wrote the Old Testament in Greek, made sure that it was actually done right. So when you look at the Greek New Testament, which is called the LXX, when you look at the Septuagint, when you look at the Septuagint, it's the exact same as the Hebrew, except it's not in Hebrew, it's in Greek. Just something to think about. But there are huge Greek uh, Jewish people, there are Jewish people all over the Roman Empire that didn't live in Judea and in Jerusalem. But here's the thing, in their later years, in their twilight years, the Jews that lived all across the empire, they always had this heart within them to go home, to go back to Judea, to go back toward Jerusalem, because they, when they died, they didn't want to be buried in foreign soil. They wanted to be buried in Jerusalem and in Jewish soil. Even though they were Hellenized, even though they dressed like a Greek, they thought like a Greek, they spoke Greek. In their heart of hearts, they were still Jewish. And they would go back. Well, generally speaking, the men died first. And that left a lot of women without their husbands. When you don't have a husband in the first century and you don't have any sons that are nearby, you are very vulnerable. In the Hebrew law, it was the Jewish tradition to take care of widows Orphans and aliens. Why? Because those are the three most people at risk in the first century and even in the B.C. centuries. Why? Because God said, you were aliens, and look what happened to you in a foreign land. I want you to take care of those that can't take care of themselves. We call this practice charity. The church picked up on this, and they were taking care of their widows. But what happened was that the Hellenized Jews, even though they were Jewish, they weren't Jewish enough for those that lived in Jerusalem or in Judea. They weren't Jewish enough. Now, just stop and think about this. They're all Jews. When you start to stop to look at it, they're all Jews, but they aren't Jewish enough. It's like country folk going into the city and trying to tell city folk how they're supposed to do things. Or city folk coming out to the country and trying to tell country folk how they're supposed to do things. They're all, let's say they're on the same nation. Let's just use the United States for an example. We are all United States citizens, but different places have different things different ways of doing things and different ideas. And if you're an outsider, you definitely know if you're an outsider. Think about the Northeast and think about the South. Those two cultural differences just within our own nation, those are not, you know, normal. Northeast, they're very fast-paced. Think New York, think Boston. Fast-paced, quick, doing things all the time. In the South, very relaxed. Don't know if you've ever been to Georgia or to Louisiana. They do things on a rather relaxed pace. I had a, uh, a boss at Johnson who was from uh, Alabama. And the way that he lived uh, when we were at, 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 in Johnson at Tennessee there, he, he was more slow than the people there in Tennessee. And I don't, I don't mean slow as in he, he didn't think right. Or he, he, was, he, just, he was very relaxed. And I love Jeff. And there were things that we, we were trying to get done, and, and we would rush to try to get them done to the end of the day. And he goes, what are you rushing for? Well, we need to get this done. He goes, what doesn't get done today will get done tomorrow. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it, boys. 
you said that yesterday. We need to get it done today. We, we, he goes, no, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. We were always fine, but that was, just, that was just the way he did things. A lot of people there were from Indiana. And in Indiana, by the way, they're kind of like what happens in Chicago. Chicago is a fast-paced area. And they are always moving. In Indiana, people are always moving. Even in the rural areas, people are always moving and doing things quickly. Not in Alabama. Alabama does things really slow. Why? Because what doesn't get done today will get done tomorrow. Don't rush yourself. Make sure you do it right. Take your time. He was just always telling us these things. And a lot of us were like, but we can get it done and then we can move on to the next thing. Nope, don't worry about it. We'll get it done and then we'll move on when this is done right. That's the way he functioned. And it didn't matter what we said or what we tried to do. That was just the way he did things. Again, we, same nation, same people, same everything, two totally different mindsets. The Hellenistic Jews were being overlooked because they weren't Jewish enough. That's the way it's being looked at. Now, here's the thing. This can cause some major issues for the first century church. This complaint that arises can have major effects on the church. It would be the same as saying, let's say that the right side has something against the left side. Literally, there's a divide here. Now, just think about that in reality. That's what you have in this church. It's not just one person against another person. It is a large group against another group of people within the same congregation. You see how this can get dicey and how this can get, if not handled properly, can have a major devastation upon the church. So let's see what happens. We know that there's an issue. We know that there's a problem. So let's see what happens. Verses 2 through 6 as we continue on here looking at the church in Acts. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among yourselves men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company, and so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenes, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. And they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands upon them. And what we find here is a rather interesting thing that happens. Luke summarizes this down into a small section. As soon as this complaint went to the apostles, they didn't come up with this idea immediately. This is something that if you've ever been a part of a leadership group or whatever, you know that you have to pull together and figure out what is going to be our best course of action. Now, there are some people, whenever an issue pops up, you know what their go-to idea is? Ignore it, and it'll eventually go away. By the way, that is the worst thing you can possibly do. You can't just ignore an issue, especially one as volatile as this. The apostles would have had to have come together and start thinking, what are our options and what is it that we can do? Notice that it is their responsibility to come up with a plan to fix this issue. And the church gave them that responsibility. They brought it to them. A complaint arose, and the 12 are the ones who are going to meet it head on. Why? Because they are the leaders of the church. It would even be apt to say that at present they would be serving as elders of that church. 
The elder's job, by the way, is to lead the church both spiritually and through certain issues that they struggle with. Saying that this is only a physical issue, no, this has spiritual ramifications as well. So the apostles have to come together and say, what is it what we're supposed to do? The first thing that they did, I find this very interesting. They recognized we have something that we are supposed to do. We have been called specifically to be witnesses here in Jerusalem and Judea and, and, and as far as we go. So we cannot, we cannot, and it is not going to be good for us to neglect doing what it is that we've been called to do. But if we don't handle this situation and we ignore it just continuing on on our same track, we're still going to have this problem and it's not going to be good for the church here. So we know what we're supposed to do. Secondly, how are we going to fix this? How is this going to be done? They realize we can't be the ones who fix it. This is something that everybody has to have buy-in. Notice what they proposed. We ask you to choose from among yourselves seven men who fit these parameters, who have this type of a character. Their character must show that they are a person who is a good person of good reputation. They must be a person who is full of the Holy Spirit and who is full of wisdom. They need to meet these three parameters. Their character has to show that they possess these three things and then bring them to us so that we may invest in them the authority to carry this out on our behalf. And that's exactly what they do. That's exactly what happens. We see them come to him. They call them all together and said, okay, this is what we've come to the realization. We have a responsibility and we have a job. And it would not be good for us to wait tables. It would not be good for us to give up and neglect the preaching of the word so that we can be a deacon. By the way, deacon means waiter. One who waits tables. One who serves. It would not be good for us to do that because we have been given our responsibility. By the way, when you look at what an elder does throughout the entirety of the church, the elder takes care of the, of the, of the body by safeguarding, preaching, and teaching the word of God through prayer and through those type of understandings. But they also lead the church through a lot of different versatile things, such as the issue that we've been facing throughout this past couple of months. The elders have had come together, we've discussed, we've talked, and we've come up with a game plan of how we're going to do things so that we keep everybody safe. Not just spiritually, but we also need to take into consideration these things as well. Everything that happens in this life, this is something that a lot of people in America separate. There's the physical world and there's the spiritual world, and the two do not touch. The reality is that the physical world and the spiritual world go like this, and they touch all the time which is what makes an elder's job extremely difficult, what makes a preacher's job extremely difficult, as we don't just deal with what happens spiritually, we deal with what happens spiritually, physically, and how they interact, how they interflow, and how they do these things. That's why they're well aware, we need to figure out a way and find people we can invest and trust to do this, to carry out on our behalf, so that we can continue on functioning as we're supposed to, and so the church can actually carry on with this ministry. Because it's a vital ministry. Charity is a major part of the Christian faith. Taking care of those that can't take care of themselves is a major part of the Christian faith. So what do they do? They give them the parameters. They say, find some people from among yourselves. Everybody has buy-in in this. We're investing this in you. You brought it to us. Now let's all of us come together and find seven men that fit these parameters, have this character that can do this. Now let's look at these parameters really quickly. I, I want to go through these real quickly before we continue on. The first one is this, that these men 
are going to be appointed to do this duty so the apostles, again, can do what they're supposed to do, devote themselves to the word of God and to prepare, and, and, sorry, and to prayer. But these are the things that they are looking for. These men, they must be a person of good reputation. What does it mean to be a person of good reputation? And how do we devise how a person has a good reputation? Do we only look at how they are in public or in their business life? Do we look at what they are doing in their private life and how they are with their family? Does one counteract the other or should they both be the same? And by the way, do we also question about their personal life? And what I mean by that is you ask the people who know what they are, outside of the public eye. So you talk to their family, and you talk to the friends that are really close to them, and you say, are they the same here, what we see as they are in private? Are they the same all the way across? Are they trustworthy? Are they honorable? Are they loving? Are they compassionate? Do those characteristics come in them? Are they a person who is humble in their business, in their public life, in their private life? Are all those things equal and do they add up? That's a person of good reputation. There are people who can have a great reputation out in public, but their home life is not at all what is perceived by the, by, by the public. That's not a person of good reputation. To be honest, I don't necessarily care what your reputation is out publicly. I first want to know what you're like at home. So what you're like at home is the truth of who you really are in your private life. That's a reality for anybody. What does it mean to have a good reputation? Can it be said that you are the same no matter where you're at? Number one, find a person of good reputation. Number two, they must be full of the Spirit. What does that mean? It means that they walk by the Spirit. It means that they possess the, spirit, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Paul explains it this way in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 25 to the church in Galatia. He says this to them. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is this. It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, the one who belongs to Christ Jesus has crucified his flesh and his passions and his desires. And therefore, he lives in the Spirit and walks by the Spirit also. Notice what Paul highlights. He goes, this is the fruit of the Spirit. These are the character qualities of someone who is walking by the Spirit. And how do we know that the Spirit is the dominant factor within his life? He has crucified those things with Christ that are basically his selfish passions, his desires, all those things that propagate self. That's why I said humility is a good thing to have with a person of good reputation. Are they humble? Because being a servant, especially within the church, you have to be humble enough to serve everyone else before you serve yourself. Are they following these things? Do they have and are they walking in the Spirit? And here's something I find interesting. If you walk according to the Spirit and you have the Spirit, uh, the fruit of the Spirit as a part of who you are, guess what you're going to have? A good reputation. The last one is, is that they're filled with wisdom. They are full of wisdom. Why is it important for this person to be wise? Why is wisdom so important throughout the scriptures and what it does? Wisdom is defined this way in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. I'm not going to read it to you, but I'm going to summarize to you what it is that Solomon highlights in these passages. He highlights to us that wisdom is, it comes from God. It needs to be a godly wisdom, not a worldly wisdom. There's two different types of wisdom. 
And the wisdom that's being spoken of by the apostles, the wisdom that's spoken of uh, by, by Solomon is a wisdom that comes from God. The wisdom that comes from God, it gives you knowledge, it gives you insight, it gives you understanding into exactly who God is and His ways and how you are to live your life in a way that pleases Him and honors Him. This type of wisdom is something that is to be treasured. You are to seek after this wisdom as you would seek after a hidden treasure, as you would go after precious silver or gold or a precious stone. It is not something that is to be neglected. This is something that is to be sought after and to be gone after your entire life. But Solomon also in the book of Proverbs reveals that if you neglect seeking the wisdom of God, then you have taken the fool's path, which leads to destruction, which leads to death, and leads to pain. We find that within the Proverbs. We find that from the man who was known as one of the wisest men that ever walked the face of this earth. So these are the kind of characteristics that are being highlighted. They must be a person of reputation. They must be a person who is full of the Spirit, who is dominated by the Spirit would be a good way to look at it, and a person who is wise according to godly standards, not earth's standards. These are the type of men that they were looking for. Why? Because if you are wise in God's eyes then you are walking by His Spirit. If you're walking by His Spirit and you are wise according to God's understanding, then you will be a person of reputation able to serve the body of Christ. That is what is highlighted here. And that's what they find. They find seven men. And I love the way that they describe the first one. They only describe the first one this way. And it's not that the others weren't. But they describe the first one this way because it lets us know they find men of quality. They talk about him, Stephen. Stephen was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. That's how he's defined. Now, here's, here's something interesting about Stephen. Stephen's deaconate didn't last long. After this, in chapter 6, if we continue on and even go into chapter 7, what you find is Stephen goes and he starts preaching the word and he starts taking care of people and he starts doing what it is that he's supposed to do, but he gets himself in trouble, just like Peter did with the Sanhedrin. And the thing is, is that Stephen goes and he preaches one of the greatest sermons that is written within Scripture, all of chapter 7. Then you get to the end of chapter 7. The Sanhedrin doesn't like what he has to say because he basically lets them know again you killed the Messiah. Sanhedrin rips their clothes, they drag him out, and they stone him to death. But while Stephen is being killed, full of the Holy Spirit, that's a word that is talked about with this man, full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up into heaven and he said, do not hold this against them. Man who is a man of good reputation. A man who is full of the Holy Spirit, a man who is wise. And you see that played out in Stephen's life to the very end. This is who they find. And I'm not going to go through and read the rest of them because I'm pretty sure I butchered at least four of their names. Yes, Bible college students, preachers do that all the time. They don't admit it. I'm pretty sure I did. But the reality is, is this is the kind of men that they brought before him, and notice what happens. The apostles lay their hands upon them and entrust them with this ability and say, go and do this in our name. We are entrusting you to go and fulfill this ministry. Go and serve because we can't serve in everything. And that's, that's something that, that we need to understand. 
leaders can't serve in every part, part, uh, possible area. You're not going to be able to find a leader that can serve in every single area and still get what it is he's supposed to do done. That's why the apostles say, bring us seven men that fit these parameters so that we can entrust them to do this so that we can fix this rift that found pleasing, was found pleasing to everyone who was congregated. Now again, remember, there are 5,000 people or so that they're having this conversation with. The entire company of those who believe. And this is what happens as they find a way in everything that they do to honor God and to accomplish unity within the body of Christ. Let's finish up with verse 7. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. There's some, some wonderful things that uh, Luke highlights here in this last verse here in verse 7. He says, the word of God spread. That's the first thing that he highlights. Notice how he started off this section. In those days, the disciples were increasing in number, but there also arose a complaint. Now, here's the thing. He tells us what happens, but it ends with the word of God spread. Had the apostles not come up with the idea to entrust someone else with this, but they themselves took it over because that's what they thought the people wanted them to do, and they know that they're supposed to be preaching the word of God. They know they're supposed to be dedicating themselves to the word of God and to prayer, but if they were to take over the daily distribution, they would have had to neglect something. And if they took over this ministry to hold the church together without appointing someone else to do it, what's what they would have neglected? They would have neglected their call. They would have neglected their primary responsibility. Be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the furthest ends of the earth. And if the disciples, the apostles, the originals, had neglected the word, what do you think the church would have taken from that? That they too could be lax on spreading the word of God. You wouldn't have Stephen going out as a deacon and continuing to preach and to spread the word. You wouldn't have Philip, as we're going to look at one of his stories, where he goes and he preaches the word and the spirit takes him and plants him in another area. Guess what he does? He starts up another church. We wouldn't have the Jerusalem uh, persecution that spreads them out. It would have been localized. It would have just stayed there. But they stayed faithful. They knew their responsibility. They said, we have a job. So the word of the Lord spread. The disciples in Jerusalem, they grew greatly in number. And then, I love this last part, and a great number of priests came to the faith. Now, realize how big this is. The priests are all Sadducees. They disagree, and they say there's no such thing as a resurrection. Looks like a large group of them changed their mind. Beautiful thing that you see here. God is reaching into places where you honestly would think God would reach in. Why? Because... The apostles stayed faithful. They called the people, you have buy-in in this, and we need you to stay faithful. We need you to trust that God will get this done. They appointed these men. The men went out and started serving and taking care of. By the way, every single one of the men that were chosen were Greek. It's not a coincidence. They chose Greek men to take care of all, all of them. And they did their job. The church in Jerusalem grew greatly. They stayed faithful. They did what they were supposed to. They kept that idea of one heart and one mind and everything in community, everything in common. 
They were faithful to what it is they were supposed to be, and God was faithful to them, and he blessed them because of it. We have seen the church in Acts. We've seen them do some great things. We've as well have seen now they had their issues. They had their problems. And again, when you stick people together, there's going to be friction. There's going to be sparks. There's going to be those things that happen. And guess what? The Bible tells us how to do that as individuals. If we have an issue against a brother or a sister as on an individual basis, it said, Jesus made it very clear, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go make up with them. Go make it right. When it comes to a congregational issue, the leaders need to step in and lead everybody because here's the reality, everybody has buy-in. It's not this side versus this side. We are all the body of Christ. What can we do to make sure that we are all on the same page? There's a beautiful picture that is painted here of the church, a church in crisis, a church that if this thing wouldn't have been handled right, it could have destroyed the fledgling church. They stayed faithful to God. It's our first thing. We need to stay faithful to what it is that we're called to do as Christians. We need to stay faithful to each other, even in the midst of our disagreements. And we need to allow God to forge us together, even to flatten out our rough edges. And we can accomplish, again, what we find in the book of Acts. This was definitely spirit-driven. This was definitely done in the spirit of God. The thing is, is we as a church can have this happen for us today. There's a lot of things that we can take from this and a lot of things that we can have. But again, this is a beautiful picture of how a church functions when there's an issue and how they let God lead them the entire way. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you and praise you for who you are. God, I ask that as we finish up here this morning, that God, as we look at this church here in the book of Acts, we look at what happened with the Jerusalem group we know that they had their issues we know that they had their differences and god we ask that when we have our differences when it gets to the point to where it's one group versus another group that father god it's not about my way versus their way it's not an us versus them but it's a question of how can we as a congregation as a leadership as a people who are yours how can we make this and do this in a way that gives you honor that gives you glory and allows us to stay faithful to you and the call that you placed on us God, we ask that in those times that you lead us in such a way. We thank you and we praise you for who you are. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Standing. We'll be singing the first and last verse of Just a Closer Walk with Thee. We always want to give an opportunity to make a decision. Again, for the millionth time, the most important decision you can make in your life is to follow Jesus Christ. But maybe this morning you just you need prayer. Or maybe you need somebody to gather around you and pray for somebody. That is welcome too. Maybe you want to come forward and make this your church home and say, I want to be a part of this group. Whatever that decision, you come as we sing, just a closer walk with thee.